Thank you, Diana. And thank you, Chris, wherever you are right now. There you are. Um, when Diana said, why don't you do worship? I was like, wow, there are about a million ways you could go with worship. But it was so cool to listen to Chris this morning because I thought, oh my goodness, we are on the same page, you know? And so I trust that what I say about worship this morning will complement what she says. And Diana is right, we have a history with Calvary. We love y'all. Uh, my husband's a pastor in Crowley, but we have about 17 relatives by blood that go to this church. <laughs> And we respect and appreciate y'all's ministry in, the, in our larger community very much. Y'all hold an important place in Fort Worth. So um, first today, I want to define worship, okay? And that, again, is like six textbooks worth of a subject. But uh, I'm going to give you a few thoughts about it as we go through it today. Um, the Hebrew definition of worship has to do with bowing down, uh, kind of like prostrating oneself, kind of like you would do homage to a king or do obeisance to a king. Um, it's a pledge of loyalty and obedience. And you can see it in the Old Testament. I'm just going to mention a few of many places you can see it in Genesis chapter 18 when Abraham greeted his heavenly guests and it says he bowed down to the earth. That's the word that, one of the words that the Hebrew uses for worship. And then what does he do? He gets up and he serves them. He offers his service and his hospitality to them as his honored guests. You can see it again when Abraham's servant goes looking for a wife at Abraham's request, and he finds Rebecca. And as all of the pieces of the puzzle fall into place, and all of the prayers that he's prayed, Lord, if, you know, if she's the one, let her do this. And if this will happen, show me your favor by this happening. You know, And when all of those puzzle pieces fall into place, he, it says he bows his head and he worships God. He's, he's acknowledging the sovereignty and power of God in taking care of this whole situation. You can also see it when Jacob travels back to his home country to be reconciled to Esau, and he like sends all these gifts ahead, and he sends the, his family and servants in four different groups because um, he's trying to protect them but he's offering himself and his gifts as, brother, I want to reconcile to you. And each group, as they approach Esau, they bow down. That's that word that kind of prostrates themselves. It says, we are your servants. Um, same thing in Joseph's dream of the sun, moon, and the stars, bowing down to him, right? That's what made his brothers so angry with him is because it made it look like he was their superior which God was actually going to do one day. Uh, in the New Testament, it's similar in the Greek. The, the verb proskuneo in the Greek means to, it comes, it is the root where our word prostrate comes from, to prostrate yourselves. The Old English, we get the actual word worship 
from the Old English worthship. It meant to acknowledge worth or to acknowledge worthiness in God or the person that you were devoted to. Um, it meant to give extreme love, adoration, and unquestioning devotion to the object of your worship. Now, I don't know if any of y'all in here are BritBox fans, like I am, but if you have seen any Jane Austen, Charles Dickens, or Baroness Orgsy movie, you know how the English appropriated this idea into their wedding ceremonies, right? Because during the ceremony, the, the bride and groom will always turn to each other and say, with my body, I thee worship. Have you picked up on that? <laughs> and, and so what is that? It means that I am exclusively and unreservedly and completely giving myself to you. And that's the attitude that worship brings when we talk about what it means to worship the Lord. Warren Wearsby defines worship as the believer's response of all that they are, mind, will, emotions, and body, to what God is and says and does. And then this is one of John Piper's definitions. We'll look at another later, that worship is treasuring God above all things. Okay, so my, one of my major goals today is for us to have conveyed to us what worship is, what it actually means. Because if we think that it's just something we can go through in our morning quiet time and tick it off a list and then go on our day, then we haven't really understood what it is. And if we sing a song or pray a prayer in our quiet time just to kind of soothe our consciences into thinking that we worship when we haven't actually worshiped, uh, and in order to escape, escape the genuine act of worship, then we've missed it. In fact, if we go from our quiet time, and Chris said stuff like this, and I'm so, it was so cool. If we go from our quiet time into worrying or into a critical attitude of our husbands or our children or our friends or our church family, and, or if we go into grumpiness, then what that reveals is that we haven't really worshipped at all, nor have we understood what worship is. So what we do in our quiet time is actually putting us in the frame, right frame of mind and the right heart attitude so that we can worship. And so um, worship is meant to be something that we do all day long, every day. So let's turn to the scriptures for just a little bit. We're going to talk about three different aspects of worship. The first one is worship is a matter of the heart. And um, we can see this, first of all, in Isaiah 29:13. Isaiah says of the people of Israel, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And then Jesus picks that up again in Mark chapter 7, and he quotes Isaiah, and he says the same thing. These people draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far, far from me. And then Jesus says, in vain do they worship me. So it was empty worship, right? It wasn't real worship. It was vain worship. In vain do they worship me. And so the Israelites, if you read that chapter, you can see that they kind of had this little 
uh, tick list of righteous deeds that they were going to do and considered themselves to have worshipped in, in a kind of a self-reliant, practical atheism where they were ordering their days and making their own choices and not realizing who God really was and, and what he was. So we can sing worship songs, we can pray all we want, but if our hearts are not holy and unreservedly given to the Lord, then we haven't worshiped, right? Uh, but this brings up the second point. Um, worship is not just a gushy, heartfelt feeling about God either. Um, because worship, number two, the second point, worship depends on good doctrine. Okay, now why does Selah say worship depends on good doctrine? Why did she not just say it, it should be word-centered? Worship should be word-centered. Well, it's because some of us, and, and I used to be one of these people, can go through reading the Bible every day for our whole lives and miss the Scripture's t teaching, what the Scripture teaches about God and what the Scripture teaches about man and what the Scripture teaches about sin and what the scripture teaches about Christ, and what the scripture teaches about salvation. And so we have to understand what the Bible actually says about God so that we can worship him from the heart with uh, the right thinking about him. And so if y'all could turn to Romans, those of you who have your Bibles, turn to Romans 11. And so I just have to tell you that our pastor has been teaching through the book of Romans for a few years now. <laughs> and so I really love Romans. And what I've learned about Romans is that the first 11 chapters are just about 100% doctrine, right? Romans is a very dense book with doctrine. You, you think through Romans, any of you who've read it recently, uh, it talks about total depravity, talks about the extent of our sin, it talks about the just consequences of our sin, it talks about our inability to save ourselves or to do anything to rescue ourselves out of our sin, it, both for spiritually advantaged people and for spiritually disadvantaged people, like we're all equal that way. And it talks about this great plan of God in sending a Savior who would actually reach out to us when we were his enemies and hated him. And then it talks about this tremendously powerful force of grace. The, the, the older theologians used to call it efficacious grace or efficacious love because grace was this powerful force that grabbed a person by their lapels and changed them. Like the, the, the book of Romans makes it clear that the gospel, it, we haven't understood the gospel until it changes our hearts, right? And then it talks about his sovereign selection of some over others, passing over some, choosing others, and then his unconditional love for those he chooses that that efficacious love makes us inseparable from the love of God so that nothing can ever 
conquer us or hurt us ever. And then after all these 11 chapters of doctrine, the teachings of scripture, what happens in chapter 11, verse 33? Okay, note the first word. Paul says, oh, 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 the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Like once he got all that doctrinal truth out of his pen and onto paper, what could he do but worship? He was worshiping. And then he goes on, for who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, who has ever given him a gift that he might be repaid for. Now look at this. Paul understood who God was. He understood the sovereign nature of our God. He says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. And, and so what does this teach us? This teaches us that when we come to worship in our own misconceptions about God. We can't really worship him in the truth of God's word, right? Like, we're all sinners. Everybody agree with that? And, and without God's word and without the teaching of God's word, we're going to default to small conceptions of God in her mind. So that when we come to him, we're coming to him where he's small and we're big, right? And so we need this clean sea breeze of strong doctrine running through our mind, changing our misconceptions about God to make it possible for him to, for us to worship him for who he truly is, right? And so um, that's what John Piper says, another quote that I'm giving from him. The inner essence of worship is the response of the heart to the knowledge of the mind when the mind is, look at this, rightly understanding God. Because if we don't understand who he really is, we're just worshiping a God we made up in our own heads, right? We're not worshiping the one true God. Um, let's just look at, look at one more scripture about this in John chapter 4, where Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. And he's talking to her about worship, right? And he says... First, he's saying, now, you always know that the Jews were worshiping at the temple, right? But then he says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now, we worship the Lord in spirit, right? We don't have to be at the temple of Jerusalem anymore. That, this is talking about that worship is a matter of the heart. But does it just say true worshipers will worship the Lord in spirit? It says true worshipers will, will worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. So, so Jesus is telling us that um, we have to understand the truth about who God is before we're ready to worship. And again, he says in verse 24, God is spirit, 
and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Um, the old Puritans had the right idea. You know, somehow we've tried to, in this generation of churchgoers, we kind of consider that in our Sunday morning services, we have the worship service, and then we have the sermon. The Puritans didn't believe that. They didn't believe that at all. The Puritans believed that the apex of worship was listening to the sermon. And that as we heard the truths from God's word that changed our hearts, then we could really worship. Um, the song service just led up to the real worship that happened during the sermon. Okay, so um, worship is a matter of the heart. Worship depends on good doctrine, the right understanding of who God is. And then three, worship, worship expresses itself through our body. So let's turn back to Romans 11. Paul breaks out in this praise of God. He ends in verse 36 by saying, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And then chapter 12. What is the very next word? Therefore. I know it's not that way in the, in the ESV, but in lots of other translations. <laughs> the therefore is the first word in that sentence. Therefore, I appeal to you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And then what does it say? Which is your spiritual worship, Right? And this is so cool, because what it's saying is that here's 11 straight chapters of doctrine. It causes Paul to burst out in praise with his mouth. And then he says, therefore, in view of this doctrine that you now understand, and you understand the mercies of God, you present your bodies. Now notice in the Old Testament, they presented to God dead sacrifices right? But we now are living sacrifices. And what, and what we're going to do with our body is now worship, right? And so it says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and ex acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So um, we what we do with our bodies becomes rather important in our understanding of worship, right? The correct understanding of who God is sets me straight and causes me to reverence him. And then with my body, I the worship, right? You can see this in the Old Testament. I don't remember if I wrote it down in your notes, but if I didn't, could y'all turn to Isaiah 6, 1 through 6? It's the time when... Um, Isaiah was called by the Lord and um, let's, I think we have time to read through this in the year that King Uzziah died I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up the train of his robe filled the temple okay so Isaiah saw God right there were no misconceptions there 
the beauty and holiness were uh, overtaking him in this vision. And then what did the seraphim do? They also spoke truth about God that he heard with his ears. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. So this was no little God, right? This was a great and awesome God that, um, that called forth a reverence and an awe. And what happened to Isaiah next? He said, woe is me, right? He immediately understood his sin because seeing God for who he really is causes us to be convicted of our sin. That's why we end up offering our bodies because it changes us, right? And so he says, woe is me for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king. He saw God for who he was. Now, this is really important because next the seraphim flew, touched his mouth with the live coal and purified him, right? And then what did he say next? God says, who shall I send and who will go for us? And he says, here am I, send me. He was offering his body as a living sacrifice, right? That was his worship in this moment. And, and this is a, points out a really important point about worship that Chris kind of alluded to. And I'm so thrilled about this because we tend to think that when we, when we come to God in our quiet time or in our worship, we have to deal with our sin first and get ourselves all gussied up and cleaned up before we come to God, right? And, and sometimes we kind of rob ourselves of opportunities for worship because we oh, I'm in no mood to go before God, right? Do you ever do that? I do it. Or I'm just too messed up right now to go to God. But Isaiah was before God, and God was the one that took care of his sin. We don't get ourselves all gussied up and then come to God. We come to God as we are, and he purifies us. I was reading through the book of Exodus last month. It was in my Bible reading plan. And I, you know, I used to not really appreciate Exodus, but I am appreciating it more and more as I grow older. And I was struck by the beauty and the glory. You know, it uses the words when it talks about the priestly garments and the accoutrements of the temple, uses words like beauty and glory and dignity and honor. And, and think about the things that's associated with temple worship. There's turquoise stones, diamonds, sapphires, gold, skillful wooden carvings, delicious smells, lit candles, freshly baked bread every day. You know, all this beauty side by side with blood and guts, <laughs> right? It is. Because the, the place of worship was where their sin was atoned for, right? And the, the, those sacrifices in the Old Testament were reminders of our sinful state and our need of atonement 
to come before God, he has to clean us up. So the worship involved the setting right of our ugly sin. We don't set it right, side by side with the beauty of his holiness. So the right view of God and the Savior humbles us in our sin, purifies us, and we offer our bodies, and our worship is complete when we act. It's all of a piece. You can't separate it out. It's all the, the same thing. So this makes worship basically something you can do all day. Um, our Protestant heritage kind of gives us this. You know, Martin Luther was the one who said that the milkmaid, as she milks the cow, can worship God as well as any monk in a monastery, right? As she's milking the cow, she can bring glory to God. And think about this. What is your conception of heaven? Do you think that we will worship God only by singing? Certainly we will be singing God's praises in heaven. But scripture doesn't say a ton, but it talks about feasting in heaven. It talks about walking. It talks about ruling over cities. It talks about going to and fro in the gates of the city, right? So shouldn't we kind of resist the notion that worship is something we only do with our mouth? Our, our Protestant heritage opens up the huge possibilities of what worship is. In fact, um, so we have that scripture in 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God, right? And so um, there was another Reformed church in town, and their T-shirts said, Eat, Sleep, Worship, because they were trying to show that they were a worshiping church, and that was cool. I didn't have any problem with that. But think about this. Can you worship in eating and sleeping too, right? Um, that's what 1 Corinthians 10.31 says. And I am so glad that Chris quoted Jean Fleming because of all the many quotes that I could have picked. She's one of the three or four that I wanted to bring up. I'm going to give you just a few scattershot examples in the closing minutes of people who teach us to worship. So Jean Fleming, for you young moms out there, I think this was in her book on motherhood. She talks about the idea of devotional living. And she talks about walking through life with your children, worshiping together in the course of the day. So as you're walking with your child, isn't that a beautiful sunset that God gave us today? Our God has blessed us so much. Our friends are coming over, and we're going to share a meal and break bread with them today. Or, um, you know, let's worship the Lord as we clean this room, right? There, I mean, the possibilities are huge. Um, think about also Elizabeth Elliot. Elizabeth Elliot um, talked a lot about worship in her book on loneliness when she lost her uh, husband, Jim. She was a widow for 13 years after that and very lonely at times. And she said, what I do with my loneliness is I offer it as a service back to God. I submit to it and then offer it back to him and say, what do you want me to do, Lord? Right? She was worshiping the Lord in her loneliness. Um, Job, when 
the Lord took away his family and his children, his, all his possessions. He said, he fell to the ground in worship. And he said, um, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And there's more. There's other scriptures. Mary is the final example that I'll leave with you. Think about the hard task that God gave Mary. You know, she was going to suffer embarrassment and misunderstanding and rejection and ridicule and gossip. And yet, what does she say? My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And she literally offered her body as a living sacrifice to be the vehicle by which Christ would be born. So is there anything that we can do, anything that we face that can't qualify as an opportunity for worship when given to the Lord? When you think it involves everything that we've talked about, the heart, right thinking about God, and action, then we offer ourselves unreservedly as a redeemed people for his purposes, our bodies, our eyes, our ears, our hands, our homes, our kitchens, our feet, our voices, everything that we have can be offered to him in worship. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all.